Section twenty four of The Great Events, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume One. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section twenty four solon's early greek legislation b c five hundred ninety four by george grot part three it has been already stated that down to the time of solon the classification received in attica was that of the four ionic tribes comprising in one scale the fratres and gents and in another scale the three thrites and forty-eight naucraries while the oipatridae seemingly a few specially respected gents and perhaps a few distinguished families in all the gents had in their hands all the powers of government solon introduced a new principle of classification called in greek the timocratic principle he distributed all the citizens of the tribes without any reference to their gents or fratres into four classes according to the amount of their property which he caused to be assessed and entered in a public schedule. Those whose annual income was equal to five hundred medimni of corn, about seven hundred imperial bushels, and upward, one medimnus being considered equivalent to one drachma in money, he placed in the highest class. Those who received between three hundred and five hundred medimni, or drachmas, formed the second class, and those between two hundred and three hundred the third the fourth and most numerous class comprised all those who did not possess land yielding a produce equal to two hundred medimni the first class called pentacosio medimni were alone eligible to the archonship and to all commands the second were called the knights or horsemen of the state as possessing enough to enable them to keep a horse and perform military service in that capacity the third class called the greek zoigiti formed the heavy armed infantry and were bound to serve each with his full panoply each of these three classes was entered in the public schedule as possessed of a taxable capital calculated with a certain reference to his annual income but in a proportion diminishing according to the scale of that income and a man paid taxes to the state according to the sum for which he stood rated in the schedule so that this direct taxation acted really like a graduated income tax the rateable property of the citizen belonging to the richest class the pentacosio medimnus was calculated and entered on the state schedule at the sum of capital equal to twelve times his annual income that of the hippos horseman or knight at a sum equal to ten times his annual income that of the tsoigit at a sum equal to five times his annual income thus a pentacosio medimus whose income was exactly five hundred drachmas the minimum qualification of this class stood rated in the schedule for a taxable property of six thousand drachmas or one talent being twelve times his income if his annual income were one thousand drachmas he would stand rated for twelve thousand drachmas or two talents being the same proportion of income to rateable capital 
but when we pass to the second class horsemen or knights the proportion of the two is changed the coarseman possessing an income of just three hundred drachmas or three hundred medimni would stand rated for three thousand drachmas or ten times his real income and so in the same proportion for any income above three hundred and below five hundred again in the third class or below three hundred the proportion is a second time altered the zoigit possessing exactly two hundred drachmas of income was rated upon a still lower calculation at one thousand drachmas or a sum equal to five times his income and all incomes of this class between two hundred and three hundred drachmas would in like manner be multiplied by five in order to obtain the amount of rateable capital upon these respective sums of schedule capital all direct taxation was levied if the state required one per cent of direct tax the poorest pentacosio medimnus would pay upon six thousand drachmas sixty drachmas the poorest hippeus would pay upon three thousand drachmas thirty the poorest soigit would pay upon one thousand drachmas ten drachmas and thus this mode of assessment would operate like a graduated income tax looking at it in reference to the three different classes but as an equal income tax looking at it in reference to the different individuals comprised in one and the same class all persons in the state whose annual income amounted to less than two hundred medimni or drachmas were placed in the fourth class and they must have constituted the large majority of the community they were not liable to any direct taxation and perhaps were not at first even entered upon the taxable schedule more especially as we do not know that any taxes were actually levied upon this schedule during the Solonian times it is said that they were all called thetes but this appellation is not well sustained and cannot be admitted the fourth compartment in the descending scale was indeed termed the tetic census because it contained all the thetes and because most of its members were of that humble description but it is not conceivable that the proprietor whose land yielded to him a clear annual return of hundred hundred and twenty hundred and forty or hundred and eighty drachmas could ever have been designated by that name such were the divisions in the political scale established by solon called by aristotle a timocracy in which the rights honours functions and liabilities of the citizens were measured out according to the assessed property of each the highest honours of the state that is the places of the nine archons annually chosen as well as those in the senate of areopagus into which the past archons always entered perhaps also the posts of prytanes of the naucrae were reserved for the first class the poor oipatrids became ineligible while rich men not oipatrids were admitted other posts of inferior distinction were filled by the second and third classes who were moreover bound to military service the one on horseback the other as heavy armed soldiers on foot moreover the liturgies of the state as they were called unpaid functions such as the trierarchy chorogy gymnasiarchy etc 
which entailed expense and trouble on the holder of them, were distributed in some way or other between the members of the three classes, though we do not know how the distribution was made in these early times. On the other hand, the members of the fourth or lowest class were disqualified from holding any individual office of dignity. They performed no liturgies, served in case of war only as light-armed or with a panoply provided by the state, and paid nothing to the direct property tax or asphora. It would be incorrect to say that they paid no taxes, for indirect taxes, such as duties on imports, fell upon them in common with the rest, and we must recollect that these latter were, throughout a long period of Athenian history, in steady operation, while the direct taxes were only levied on rare occasions. But though this fourth class, constituting the great numerical majority of the free people, were shut out from individual office, their collective importance was in another way greatly increased. They were invested with the right of choosing the annual archons out of the class of Pentecostio Medimni, and what was of more importance still, the archons and the magistrates generally, after their year of office, instead of being accountable to the senate of Areopagus, were made formally accountable to the public assembly sitting in judgment upon their past conduct. They might be impeached and called upon to defend themselves, punished in case of misbehavior, and debarred from the usual honor of a seat in the senate of Areopagus. Had the public assembly been called upon to act alone, without aid or guidance, this accountability would have proved only nominal, but Solon converted it into a reality by another new institution, which will hereafter be found of great moment in the working out of the Athenian democracy. He created the pro-boilotic, or pre-considering senate, with intimate and special reference to the public assembly, to prepare matters for its discussion, to convoke and superintend its meetings, and to ensure the execution of its decrees. The Senate, as first constituted by Solon, comprised four hundred members, taken in equal proportions from the four tribes, not chosen by lot, as they will be found to be in the more advanced stage of the democracy, but elected by the people, in the same way as the archons then were, persons of the fourth, or poorest class of the census, though contributing to elect, not being themselves eligible. But while Solon thus created the new pre-considering senate, identified with and subsidiary to the popular assembly, he manifested no jealousy of the pre-existing Areopagitic senate. On the contrary, he enlarged its powers, gave to it an ample supervision over the execution of the laws generally, and imposed upon it the censorial duty of inspecting the lives and occupation of the citizens, as well as of punishing men of idle and dissolute habits. He was himself, as past archon, a member of this ancient senate, and he is said to have contemplated that, by means of the two senates, the state would be held fast, as it were with a double anchor, against all shocks and storms. Such are the only new political institutions, apart from the laws to be noticed presently, 
which there are grounds for ascribing to solon when we take proper care to discriminate what really belongs to solon and his age from the athenian constitution as afterward remodelled it has been a practice common with many able expositors of grecian affairs and followed partly even by dr Thirlwall, to connect the name of solon with the whole political and judicial state of athens as it stood between the age of pericles and that of demosthenes the regulations of the senate of five hundred the numerous public diecasts or jurors taken by lot from the people as well as the body annually selected for law revision and called nomothetes and the open prosecution called the grafe paranomon to be instituted against the proposer of any measure illegal unconstitutional or dangerous there is indeed some countenance for this confusion between solonian and post-Solonian Athens, in the usage of the orators themselves. For Demosthenes and Aeschines employ the name of Solon in a very loose manner, and treat him as the author of institutions belonging evidently to a later age, for example, the striking and characteristic oath of the Heliastic jurors, which Demosthenes ascribes to Solon, proclaims itself in many ways, as belonging to the age after Clisthenes, especially by the mention of the Senate of five hundred, and not of four hundred. Among the citizens who served as jurors or diecasts, Solon was venerated generally as the author of the Athenian laws. An orator, therefore, might well employ his name for the purpose of emphasis, without provoking any critical inquiry whether the particular institution which he happened to be then impressing upon his audience, belonged really to Solon himself, or to the subsequent periods. Many of those institutions which Dr. Thirlwall mentions in conjunction with the name of Solon are among the last refinements and elaborations of the democratical mind of Athens, gradually prepared, doubtless, during the interval between Clisthenes and Pericles, but not brought into full operation until the period of the latter, B.C. 460-429. to 429. For it is hardly possible to conceive these numerous dicasteries and assemblies in regular, frequent, and long-standing operation without an assured payment to the dicasts who composed them. Now such payment first began to be made about the time of Pericles, if not by his actual proposition, and Demosthenes had good reason for contending that if it were suspended, the judicial as well as the administrative system of Athens would at once fall to pieces. It would be a marvel such a nothing short of strong direct evidence would justify us in believing that in an age when even partial democracy was yet untried, Solon should conceive the idea of such institutions it would be a marvel still greater that the half-emancipated seats and small proprietors for whom he legislated, yet trembling under the rod of the eupatrid archons, and utterly inexperienced in collective business, should have been found suddenly competent to fulfill these ascendant functions, such as the citizens of conquering Athens in the days of Pericles, full of the sentiment of force, and actively identifying themselves with the dignity of their community. 
became gradually competent, and not more than competent, to exercise this effect. To suppose that Solon contemplated and provided for the periodical revision of his laws by establishing a nomothetic jury or dicastery, such as that which we find in operation during the time of Demosthenes, would be at variance, in my judgment, with any reasonable estimate either of the man or of the age. Herodotus says that Solon, having exacted from the Athenians solemn oath that they would not rescind any of his laws for ten years, quitted Athens for that period, in order that he might not be compelled to rescind them himself. Plutarch informs us that he gave to his laws force for a century. Solon himself and Draco before him had been lawgivers evoked and empowered by the special emergency of the times. The idea of a frequent revision of laws by a body of lot-selected die-casts belongs to a far more advanced age, and could not well have been present to the minds of either. The wooden rollers of Solon, like the tables of the Roman decemvirs, were doubtless intended as a permanent, fons omnis publici privatica juris. If we examine the facts of the case, we shall see that nothing more than the bare foundation of the democracy of Athens, as it stood in the time of Pericles, can reasonably be ascribed to Solon. I gave to the people, Solon says in one of his short remaining fragments, as much strength as sufficed for their needs, without either enlarging or diminishing their dignity, for those two, who possessed power and were noted for wealth, I took care that no unworthy treatment should be reserved. I stood with the strong shield cast over both parties, so as not to allow an unjust triumph to either. Again, Aristotle tells us that Solon bestowed upon the people as much power as was indispensable, but no more. The power to elect their magistrates and hold them to accountability if the people had had less than this, they could not have been expected to remain tranquil. They would have been in slavery and hostile to the constitution. Not less distinctly does Herodotus speak when he describes the revolution subsequently operated by Clisthenes. The latter, he tells us, found the Athenian people excluded from everything. These passages seem positively to contradict the supposition, in itself sufficiently improbable, that Solon is the author of the peculiar democratical institutions of Athens, such as the constant and numerous dicasts for judicial trials and revision of laws. The genuine and forward democratical movement of Athens begins only with Clisthenes, from the moment when that distinguished alcamonoid either spontaneously or from finding himself worsted in his party strife with Isagoras, purchased by large popular concessions the hearty cooperation of the multitude under very dangerous circumstances. While Solon, in his own statement, as well as in that of Aristotle, gave to the people as much power as was strictly needful, but no more, Clisthenes, to use the significant phrase of Herodotus, being vanquished in the party contest with his rival, took the people into partnership. 
It was thus to the interest of the weaker section, in a strife of contending nobles, that the Athenian people owed their first admission to political ascendancy, in part at least to this cause, though the proceedings of Clisthenes indicate a hearty and spontaneous popular sentiment. But such constitutional admission of the people would not have been so astonishingly fruitful in positive results if the course of public events for the half-century after Clisthenes had not been such as to stimulate most powerful their energy, their self-reliance, their mutual sympathies, and their ambition. I shall recount in a future chapter these historical causes, which, acting upon the Athenian character, gave such efficiency and expansion to the great democratical impulse communicated by Clisthenes. At present it is enough to remark that that impulse commences properly with Clisthenes and not with Solon. But the Solonian constitution, though only the foundation, was yet the indispensable foundation of the subsequent democracy. And if the discontents of the miserable Athenian population, instead of experiencing his disinterested and healing management, had fallen at once into the hands of selfish power-seekers like Cylon or Pisistratus, the memorable expansion of the Athenian mind during the ensuing century would never have taken place, and the whole subsequent history of Greece would probably have taken a different course. Solon left the essential powers of the state still in the hands of the oligarchy. The party combats between Pisistratus, Lycurgus, and Megacles, thirty years after his legislation, which ended in the despotism of Pisistratus, will appear to be of the same purely oligarchical character as they had been before Solon was appointed archon. But the oligarchy, which he established, was very different from the unmitigated oligarchy which he found, so teeming with oppression and so destitute of redress, as his own poems testify. It was he who first gave both to the citizens of middling property and to the general mass of locus standi against the oipatrides. He enabled the people partially to protect themselves, and familiarized them with the idea of protecting themselves by the peaceful exercise of a constitutional franchise. The new force, through which this protection was carried into effect, was the public assembly called Heliae, regularized and armed with enlarged prerogatives, and further strengthened by its indispensable ally, the pro-boiloitic or pre-considering senate. Under the Solonian constitution, this force was merely secondary and defensive, but after the renovation of Clisthenes, it became paramount and sovereign. It branched out gradually into those numerous popular dicasteries, which so powerfully modified both public and private Athenian life, drew to itself the undivided reverence and submission of the people, and by degrees rendered the single magistracies essentially subordinate functions. The popular assembly, as constituted by Solon, appearing in modified efficiency and trained to the office of reviewing and judging the general conduct of a past magistrate, forms the intermediate stage between the passive Homeric agora 
and those omnipotent assemblies and dicasteries which listened to pericles or demosthenes compared with these last it has in it but a faint streak of democracy and so it naturally appeared to aristotle who wrote with a practical experience of athens in the time of the orators but compared with the first or with the anti-solonian constitution of attica it must doubtless have appeared a concession eminently democratical to impose upon the oipatride archon the necessity of being elected or put upon his trial of after accountability by the rabble of freemen such would be the phrase in oipatride society would be a bitter humiliation to those among whom it was first introduced for we must recollect that this was the most extensive scheme of constitutional reform yet propounded in greece and that despots and oligarchies shared between them at that time the whole grecian world as it appears that solon while constituting the popular assembly with its proboletic senate had no jealousy of the senate of areopagus and indeed even enlarged its powers we may infer that his grand object was not to weaken the oligarchy generally but to improve the administration and to repress the misconduct and irregularities of the individual archons and that too not by diminishing their powers but by making some degree of popularity the condition both of their entry into office and of their safety or honor after it it is in my judgment a mistake to suppose that solon transferred the judicial power of the archons to a popular dicastery these magistrates still continued self-acting judges deciding and condemning without appeal not mere presidents of an assembled jury as they afterwards came to be during the next century for the general exercise of such power they were accountable after their year of office such accountability was the security against abuse a very insufficient security yet not wholly inoperative it will be seen however presently that these archons though strong to coerce and perhaps to oppress small and poor men had no means of keeping down rebellious nobles of their own rank such as pisistratus lycurgus and megacles each with his armed followers when we compare the drawn swords of these ambitious competitors ending in the despotism of one of them with the vehement parliamentary strife between themistocles and aristides afterward peaceably decided by the vote of the sovereign people and never disturbing the public tranquillity we shall see that the democracy of the ensuing century fulfilled the conditions of order as well as of progress better than the Salonian constitution. End of section 24